0: Amen. Apparently whoever used this before me was uh, four foot five, so Getty, is you. It's either you or Donald, I don't know, that's my guess. So, Listen, let's uh, open up to the book of Acts. Let's pick up where we left off last week and uh, where we've been uh, really over the past few months and As you're finding yourself your place there into Acts uh, 13, let me just say a couple things. Uh, We, um, one, we finally completed our renovation of our uh, ceiling. If you haven't noticed, we've been in construction. We're still under construction, putting back pews what originally we thought would take us a few days to match paint, and then we discovered that none of the paint was the same consistency, and then it absorbed paints, and I think 380 gallons of paint later, here we are. Um, Our team finished late last night, uh, probably around six o'clock, I guess, and there's still uh, work to be done. But I need you to remember something, all right? That's like every one every 100-year project that we do, 50-year project. So um, in, in 50 years, when we have to redo this again, I just need you to remember alabaster white. So when we try to match it, somebody here has told their children and their grandchildren what color we chose, all right? So that we can find it. Um, if you don't like the paint color, uh, I've just instructed the staff and the deacons, you can just contact Karen Sanders because she picked it out. And so um, I don't wanna hear it, you just blame her. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. And, uh, but uh, we're thankful for our facilities crew. Uh, we want this room to, to look pristine in every way and it just needs some, some care to it. Um, I also wanna say this, as we gather, uh, get ready to gather again on the fourth, uh, let me just say there's some of you that are watching online uh, no joke, somebody told me this a while back that they had just gotten so accustomed to not putting their britches on to come to church, they're just gonna stay home and watch the online services, okay? So let me, let me just tell you something, if that's you, I will be at your house next week to help you put your pants on so you can make it to church, all right? Um, we want you here, if you've been vacationing, if you've been shopping, if you've been eating in restaurants, if, if you feel safe enough to do that, my friend, my brother in Christ, my sweet sister, you should feel safe enough to come to church. And we want you here, because you being here and being back, it matters. It's not about what we take from this place, but it's about what we give and when you're not here, you can't give to other people and to serve them in that way. And so we hope uh, you, will, you will join us and, uh, and come with us. Acts chapter 13. Uh, we are just going to sort of jump right in it. I want to apologize ahead of time. Um, I usually don't try to cover this much scripture. I've never had this many slides, but I did finish the first service in 30 minutes, and so I'm going to talk really fast as fast as Johnny Derwin talks this morning, wherever Johnny is and we're going to get through this. All right. Um, we're going to jump into some heavier things that we haven't really jumped into with issues, um, of justification and other things. And so I want you to bear with me. Um, we live in a a culture and in a city and in a country that's infatuated with heroes How many of you had heroes growing up that you looked up to? Whether they were Marvel superheroes or they were in the DC realm, uh, depending on what side you picked. In my home, uh, Superman was king, right? And that's, I'm a DC guy. Um, But also within my home and even later on in life, One of my heroes in life that I've grown to appreciate. Uh, I like to watch Westerns. And John Wayne, let's just say it, the manliest of all men, um, he's my hero. Like in every which way, uh, on the screen at the very least, I want to be like John Wayne. Maybe not so much the personal life, because he struggled quite quite a bit. If you know anything about John Wayne, he was in over 150, 60 some odd movies. I think I've seen almost every single one of them. John Wayne was was famous for a lot of things, just being the tough guy, never really dying. I think he only died in like three or four of his movies. I used to be able to name which ones he died in. But John Wayne was famous for having what was known as the John Wayne strut. Do you remember this? You remember watching John Wayne walk and he would do something sort of with his shoulders and, and his you know his, he almost walked kind of bold legged and, and you'd see him in the same thing every time. And, and people tried to imitate this walk, but, but most people failed. After he died, there was sort of a, a legend that developed in... Why did he start walking that way? Because it was obvious that he was doing that for the movie screen. And so there was speculation that uh, him and the director had sort of come up with this sort of macho walk for cowboys and like gritty men. Uh, There were a couple of other rumors out there. Um, But what we learned later on was, was from one of his closest friends that the reason why he walked that way was not so much that he was acting, but that physically his body made him do that. Now here's why it made it do that. John Wayne was just shy of being six feet four inches. He was a tall man with pretty broad shoulders. That's a pretty big guy. Now, here's the weird thing about John Wayne. Though he was just under six feet four inches, he only wore a size six boot, size six boot. Now I've been to to the Hollywood Walk of Fame and I've found his, his footprints and I can testify that his feet are incredibly small. And I cannot describe for you the overwhelming disappointment that I felt in that moment that my childhood hero, as many men he had killed on the screen and survived and won the bad guys, was six foot four, but he had a size six foot. And in some ways, I sort of, it sort of knocked him off of this high horse that I had him. I was like, God, I mean, like John Wayne, he's not perfect after all. You know, heroes have a way of, of idealizing all of the very things that we want to embody and to see. But here's the reality of heroes. All of them have deficiencies. All of them have something wrong with them. Even Superman could be defeated by kryptonite. He had a weakness. Every hero that we can imagine has a weakness. You know, in the Bible, there is, the scriptures are pointing to this longing and this understanding of we need heroes within our own life. And the only hero, the only character in the Bible that's worthy of that, that's without any kind of imperfection, we would argue, according to scripture, perfect and blameless, was Jesus, I don't have to tell you this, uh, because you see it on the title screen, but, but I want you to know this and, and I want us to, to sort of, uh, ingrain this in our, our minds. Did you know this? The Bible, the gospel, it's not about you. Did you know that? Say it with me. The the, the gospel is not about me. Say it louder for the people in the back. Ready? Go. It's not about you. The story of the Bible, it's not about you. It's about one being, it's about one person, it's about God and how God has chosen to to supernaturally to send his son down to embody and to die for our sins so that when we make much of Jesus and exalt his name through the spirit, we bring glory to the Godhead. And so our whole life and our whole aim is meant to point people to the reality that the gospel is not about them, but it's about something bigger than them. It's about a story that's being told from ages ago that is pointing to this greater and and more perfect person, more perfect David, more perfect Abraham, more perfect Solomon that was embodied in Jesus. And so, as we begin to look at the text this morning, we're going to read through a sermon that the Apostle Paul gives to a primarily Jewish audience. And the reason why we're setting all this up in the context of heroes is because what I want you to see before we even jump in is I want you to notice this repetition of phrases that occurs all throughout Paul's sermon that he saturates the text in verses 16 through about verse 30 over 16 different times. He uses the same word, God. God did this. God sent this, God allowed this, God disciplined this way. God, 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 God. And the reason I think Paul preached in this way in particular is a reminder for us today that our stories and our lives that we're writing right now, that we're living and existing, ultimately need to be pointing to God. So let's look at the text this morning and let's begin in verse 16. So Paul stands up to speak to this audience and he says, Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen to me. The God of this people, Israel, he chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. They were disobedient. They didn't listen to God. They didn't trust him. They didn't have faith. And God allows this to persist. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Cana, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So finally, he gives what was promised. But all of this took about 450 years And after that, he then gives them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king because the judges weren't enough and God therefore gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he then raised up David, a man after God's own heart to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. But of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, no, but behold, after me is one who is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now what Paul does is he is speaking in what we have identified in previous weeks contextually to his audience. He understands that he has a primarily Jewish audience that understands Old Testament history. They understand theology from the background. They would have understood and identified with these stories. They would have been well taught with them, them, ingrained in their being. They would have heard these stories from the time they were little babies until they were grown men and women. They were very literate in the Bible and understanding these things. And so what Paul does is he walks through salvation history beginning in the Old Testament talking about how all of the things that God was doing from allowing them to wander around in the the wilderness, allowing them to fight battles and, and conquering people and appointing judges and bringing prophets and giving them kings such as David and Solomon. All of these men and all of these instances We're meant to point to someone greater that is eventually coming. He's not here yet, but he's going to come. All of history in in the Old Testament, all of salvation history ultimately is leading the church or the people of God to this understanding that God is, is slowly and methodically moving his people to have this awareness and this understanding that they need someone to save them and atone for their sins. Now, it doesn't mean that in every instance in the Old Testament, Christ is hiding out under a rock somewhere and we've got to discover him. But when we back out and look at the larger view of what's taking place in the scripture, we know that God appoints and allows these things, for Paul says it in this moment, pointing to the day that Christ is coming again. And when Christ came, he understood that the world then, it was evil, and there was wrong, and there were injustices. But God also understood that even when he sends Jesus at the appropriate time, though there are evils and injustices and people are being wrongly treated, God knew and understood that before he ultimately puts those things to an end, which he will someday, he needed to deal with the sin that existed within the individual first. And so when Christ came into the world the first time, he came to deal with our our sin. But friend, I wanna tell you this. Someday he's coming back according to Revelation 19 and 20 and he will eventually deal with the injustices that we see in our world today. But our sin was more important to him because he wanted us to be reconciled to him first. And so he deals with sin, death, and evil on our behalf, knowing that he's coming back. But here's what I want you to do when we look at the larger view of this. As we see this repetition of words, but God did, but God did, but God saved, but God appointed, but God sent, but God allowed. God allowed these things to happen for this reason. Because he wants his people to understand and to see that as we come to the text and as we examine the scripture, that we ought to examine the scripture more to to see God than we want to see ourselves. The primary goal when we come before the scripture is first and foremost that we would know God, that we would understand him that we would see how his, his character and his attributes, how he interacts with his people. We wanna know who God is first. And it doesn't mean that we can't then soon discover ourselves in the process, but oftentimes, Christians, we get it backwards. We seek to go find ourselves, and, and listen, we live in a day and an age of, of personality profiles and Enneagram numbers, do we not? I mean, I'm guilty of this. When I came to Travis in November, One of the first things I did, I said, listen, um, if you know your Myers-Briggs, I wanna know your Myers-Briggs, if you know your Enneagram number, I don't know if I can say that here in this pulpit, That's sacrilegious, but I did anyway, what's your number? And the reason why I wanted to know that was not so that I could then inform them of my number or my personality profile, but it was so that I could understand them better so that I could serve them, not so they could serve me. But oftentimes we become so enamored in discovering ourselves and who we are because we want people to understand when I'm dealing with with Carvin, our our chairman of the deacons, I'm like, listen, you just need to know I'm a direct person and you just need to deal with that. And this is just how it is. That's a terrible way to form a relationship. You just need to know that I'm I'm a highly emotional and, and volatile person And you, Mike, you just need to deal with that from time to time. Imagine if we said that to our spouses in our marriages, what they would then do to us. The purpose of trying to figure out who we are, it's a good thing and it serves a role. But friend, I plead with you this morning, that is not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is as we come to the text to seek God more than we want to see ourselves. In seeking to find God, we end up finding ourselves. We end up discovering who we are in relationship to a holy, eternal, immutable God and how he has affection for his people and how he loves us, that love and perfection that he has for himself, that he he spits it towards our our direction, he pushes it and he wants us to know, friend, we, we, we are called out, chosen, redeemed people by God and he cares about us. But we can't come to that truth until we come to the understanding that God is a loving, merciful, compassionate God. And we let our view of who God is inform ultimately who we are. And so Paul walks through this and he's pointing them to this greater adam this greater david this this greater judge this greater prophet that is coming someday but then he transitions in verse 26 to what we would just call a pretty uh, direct gospel of jesus and and look with me at the text in verse 26 where we pick up and he says brothers he transitions in his sermon sons of the family of abraham of those among whom you fear god to us has been sent the message of this salvation For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, nor understand Jesus, for that matter, which are read every Sabbath and fulfilled them by condemning him. Isn't that a great thought? Just pause me for just a second. For those of you that wander around and you often feel so misunderstood, recognize this this truth in in the word that even Jesus who spoke with perfection and with truth was often misunderstood and misheard by people. Even the son of God was misunderstood and they condemned him. Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate, kill him, execute him. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you this very proclamation, this good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus up. And it is written in the second Psalm, listen, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, meaning he was perfect and and blameless. He, He was without defilement. He had spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Verse 35, therefore he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one, Jesus, see corruption. He will be perfect all the way to the cross. Never sinning. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he falls asleep and he was laid with his fathers and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So Paul sets them up to this coming of christ and then he transitions and he's saying like listen this is the good news and the proclamation of who jesus says and this teaches us what i think is the larger theme of the sermon today by way of application is that christ is the hero of the bible and he must remain the hero of our teaching and preaching so here's your responsibility as a church this is an equal opportunity partnership You should hold your elders accountable for teaching and proclaiming Christ. You should hold your staff accountable for teaching and only proclaiming Christ. Next week, when you gather again face-to-face with your small group leaders, you should hold them accountable for teaching and only preaching Christ. When you gather with whoever that is, you hold yourself accountable that this is our life's mission is to make much of Jesus everywhere that we go so that people far from God will come to know him and the worthiness and the excellencies of who he is and what he's done for his church and for his people. But then... Paul transitions and this is where I would say we may jump into the deeper end of the pool maybe deeper perhaps than we've we've been yet at least since I've been here at Travis because what begins to happen is Paul begins to speak about this issue that we term it justification and so I'm going to go seminary on you for just a few minutes so so connect with me for just a second I'm gonna bombard you with a couple of things And, and I know by the end, like in the first service, some were just sitting there going, okay? We'll come back at some point. This is sort of an introduction. We could speak to these things for years. We see the justification by Christ that Paul lays out in verses 38 through 41. Just look at verses 38 and 39 and he says this, let it be known to you, therefore brothers, that through this man's forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, You have been forgiven in Jesus, proclaiming the good news to you, and by him, everyone who believes, notice what he says, is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You are are now, have been declared free because of what Christ has done on your behalf, and so we, we take this, as well as some passages in Romans 4 and, and Romans 2 and 3, where Paul elaborates on this theme of justification, and we just sort of termino- we have this terminology that we use, we just say, listen, we are justified by faith. This is a tenet, not just within Baptist churches, but across Protestant and evangelical churches for the most part. Generally accepted. And what this means is being justified means we are declared righteous, not made righteous. And there's a subtle distinction between those two things because the proper understanding of justification is that God declares me as sort of a judiciary act. He says, you are righteous in Christ. There is nothing that you can do to earn your right standing before God. You can't come to church enough to be right with him. You can't give enough to be right with him. You can't be benevolent in your heart. You can't be full of compassion enough to be right with him. You can't display all the fruits of the the fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Listen, those are not the things that make you right with God, but rather the finished work of Jesus. Justification is, is a judicial act or a legal declaration. That, that is our understanding of this. We are justified by God's grace, not because of our works, but because of the work of Christ. So I've been made right with God because of Jesus, not because that I'm a pastor or, 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 or I've done some, some okay things with, with my life. I have been declared righteous by Jesus through my faith in him, my understanding and coming to know him. The reason for which God accepts us and he pardons us, it's not found somewhere within us as if he has to sort of pull that out and and he can just sort of hang on to that. The Bible says that even our most righteous deeds and acts are like filthy rags before him. That no good comes from us apart from Christ. And and so we can certainly imitate goodness and we can be loving people that don't know Jesus. We can be compassionate people that display some of those things, but those things are, are tainted because of the sin that exists within our life. Now this issue of justification has obviously been a divisive issue in in church life for 1,500 years, almost 2,000 really. It's the issue in which Martin Luther, the theologian, penned his 95 theses on the wall to, to separate from Roman Catholicism. Now I know that in our church, in fact, this morning I talked to two uh, people in our first service that, that were uh, Roman Catholics and they're here just sort of looking and, and they're, they're seeking and God's doing something in their heart and in their midst. So I want to try to speak with as much clarity as I possibly can, because I know there are some, some Catholics that are here in this room. And so I want to be gentle to you. I want to love you. If I've mischaracterized you, please come up and correct me. But I'm going to quote one of your uh, Catholic theologians to you today to explain the difference between how we view justification versus Roman Catholics. There's a Catholic theologian by the name of Carl Adam. And in describing justification, he says this from the Roman Catholics view. He says this, we have not only the certainty of forgiveness, but also the severe imperative, like the commandments and the doctrine of merit. What he means by that, he later goes on in the article that he writes on this, is that this is how Catholics experience, they have forgiveness of sins, but to maintain the forgiveness of sins, they have to do several things. They have to attend mass regularly, or they'll they'll lose it. They have to give regularly, or they they lose it. They're, They're out of grace, they're out of favor, out of standing with God. They have to get married in the church. They have to be uh, catechized in, in, in their way and confirmation. There's all these things that get put before them, and they've got to maintain it, and earn it, and save it, and hold on to it. But for Protestants, which we would technically be in, in that category, I'm going to quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, I had to clarify this in the first service. I said, Pastor, you quoted the Westminster. Okay, I'm still Baptist, okay? Like, listen, reformed, hardcore, 5, 6.0 Calvinists can still say really good things with clarity that we should listen to from time to time, okay? So this is not an endorsement of this document, but there's a lot of good things in it that we ought to pay attention to and that we ought to listen to. And I think it speaks with great clarity on this issue of justification better than most other confessions. And this is what it says. He says, they write this, God freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into us, but rather by pardoning our sins and accounting us as righteous, not for anything wrought in us or done by us, but for Christ's sake alone. Amen. But here's the double-edged sword that my Roman Catholic friend asked me after the first service. He said, if that's true and that's your understanding of justification, doesn't that take away your incentive to come to church? Doesn't that take away your incentive to give and to serve and to minister and to do things? And and I said, that's been the critique of Catholicism ever since this split happened. And so our understanding and response to that is that we would hold to the truth and the reality that I think all of scripture points to that when we speak about change in the life of a person, change happens in a person by not being told what they need to do for God but rather hearing about what God has already done for them. That's my response to that question. So I think it's more compelling Instead of me dangling a carrot in front of your face and saying, do these things for God, do these things for God, I meant to remind you of those things and to say, this is what God has called us for, but not, you need to do these things before God to maintain your righteous standing before him. But rather the understanding is because I see the the, the, the levels to which God came to save me and the compassion and the mercy in which he redeemed me from my sins. I am motivated out of that salvation, out of that right standing, out of that being justified in God's eyes to then go and do the good works to give and to serve and and to love hardened and difficult people to endure alongside the church in the middle of a pandemic and to just say let's keep going friend he's worth it he's worth it he's worth it that's much more compelling And so we're motivated out of this changed relationship and this dynamic that that has come before us through the Spirit of God to then go and to do those things. And listen, um, what happens at the end of Paul's sermon in verses 42 through 52, um, you, you end up with this like very mixed reaction that occurs in the audience. And so remember we said Jesus was often misunderstood and misheard, so watch what happens as he's just he's spitting truth bombs on them, like just, word, just boom, Paul's just going and he's lighting them up, right? And they're hearing the word of God and, and notice what happens. It says in verse 42, so they go out and the people beg that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And so he's like, okay, I'll go speak to these guys. And so after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, these Jews listened to it, these converts, and so they began to, to follow Paul and Barnabas who spoke with them, um, urging them to continue in the grace of God. So, so they, they got some followers, but then notice what happens in verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, heard the message... They were enraged with jealousy and began to contradict and tell Paul, you don't really mean what you're saying. They begin to revile him and to speak negatively towards him. Verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And then the Gentiles hear this. The Jews get mad about it. The Gentiles hear it. They start rejoicing and they're like, this is great. I, I'm, like, I'm, I'm being brought to God and, and, and saved of my sins. I've been apart and far from him. And God's brought me along in the process and they're not mad at paul but it says they're rejoicing and and the reason why i think this is important for us this morning as we conclude is that as christians as we go with the gospel and the good news that jesus is is the main character god is the main character of all of scripture and we proclaim that message we have to be prepared but not everybody is going to accept it and agree with it some will but many won't increasingly as our culture becomes more and more polarized and the gray of postmodernity just sort of erodes before us and it you're just either you're either on the this side or this side In the middle, the cultural Christian, I think one of the things that we're gonna see that COVID is doing, it is fixing to eliminate the cultural Christian. Like the person that just coming, because this is a part of the culture that that I live in, void of a a relationship with, with Jesus. And what we begin to see is the polarization and the attacks that become much more brazen on our faith. Did you know that the cross of Christ is foolishness to those that are perishing. They hate it. They don't understand it. They revile it and we have been called to bear witness to that message. Therefore, if Christ is going to be reviled, we most certainly will too. I realize that statement is not a make you feel good, go home to your mother kind of statement but I wanna be real with you that following Jesus is only gonna get harder because I want it to reinforce the idea that you cannot do it by yourself or you will be eaten up by the wolves. The only way you are gonna continue to walk and to persist is if you have a group of people, men and women coming alongside you, encouraging you, coming to church regularly, faithfully, singing to the Lord. But you guys also know when we sing, we're singing to each other as well. Like we're encouraging each other. Hey, we've got this. Like we're praying the same prayers. God, send revival on our city. Break down strongholds. Like we long for those things. We want those good things to happen. This morning, my, my goal is to invite Jeffrey and the team back up with me. Because I want some of you to hear this gospel message, maybe for the first time, like when Paul proclaims it. And I think some of you are here today and you've been laboring for God to try to maintain your standing with Him. And what I want us to begin to do is to think about this differently, to think about the levels to which God has saved you. You think about your deepest, darkest sin, the wickedness that exists within your heart, and then you recall the day that God saved you from that sin, and you let that be the motivation for your obedience. You let that be the motivation for your trust and for you walking forward in the faith to persist. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that Jesus proclaimed that Paul has come to speak to us that the scripture speaks about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've saved us and redeemed us of our sins. We're grateful that this morning you you remind us in the Psalms that um, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. You are a kind God and you love us. And Lord, we are grateful for that truth. We pray now that your, your kindness, the fact that you, you love us right where we are, right now, Lord, I pray that through your spirit, Lord, I would ask and just plead for, for those that are here today that you would just whisper in, in their ears through your spirit to just, just I, I love you just as you are. I need you to hear that this morning. Some of you feel unlovable by God. And I want you to feel that and sense that and think that truth. We pray God that if there's those that are here today that are far from you, that that you would draw them to yourself. You would give them saving faith and understanding the eyes to see, you would remove the blindness to make the dead alive. Father, for those that are here today that are Christians, I pray that we would be like Paul this week in whatever context that message needs to be taught and and shared, that we would faithfully share that message to someone who's far from you. We would be on mission this week as we go. Help us walk in obedience, Father. We love you right now you would just overwhelm us with your grace and your mercy. God's people said,